Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for our time of worship where we could just sing to you and let you know how wonderful and incredible that you are, Father. Now, as we look in your word, may your spirit please lead us and guide us uh, into truth, God. A lot of it being a reminder, but things, God, that we need to know in order to be um, citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom that are enjoying you, enjoying your love for us, and spreading that love to others. So thanks for your word. Uh, thanks for this time this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever thought that you knew somebody and then you realize all of a sudden you really were completely wrong about them? Yeah. Ever had that happen? That happened to me when we were missionaries in Germany back uh, starting in the late 90s. Um, we, we, I met a guy, we were dorm parents, and there was another four, fellow dorm parent who he was this big, gruff, kind of rough around the edges Canadian guy who you couldn't tell really what he thought about you, if he liked you or he was going to kill you. Kind of, you just couldn't tell. You just could not tell because he kind of had this really deep voice and stern. And, and we had different views on how to, you know, do dorm parenting and how to care for kids and things like that. And actually, at one point, he, he, we, after we got to know him and his wife a little bit more, and we really started to kind of little, get a little closer, they took us out to dinner once in uh, Basel, Switzerland. We flew all the way. No, we lived right by there. So we, were, we, we went to dinner, and he told me, he confided in me, he said, Rob, I got to tell you, I didn't like you. When you first came, I didn't like you. Because we, we were the Californians, you know? you know. If you know what that's like to be a Californian and go somewhere else where there's no Californians, you're a weirdo, okay? You just are. Uh, and so, but it turns out though, this guy that I thought, this is going to make our lives miserable over here. This guy's going to be the bane of my existence over here. Turns out that this guy was actually the sweetest teddy bear of a guy. I really grew to sincerely love this man. We played basketball on the court together, and he would, you know, he weighed three times as much as I did. He'd push me around, and we would joke, and we really bonded. So I was really shocked at how, what God did, and not how I really assumed, and I'd assumed that my missionary journey was going to be rough because of this guy. Well, today, in the passage that we're going to look at today, we are going to watch Jesus in a very striking and dramatic way show the religious leaders of Israel how what they thought they knew about God and his kingdom has actually been completely wrong. And we've been kind of looking at that a bit already, all right? But and what he's also going to point out is what they've been looking at is, is how his, their stubbornness, stubbornness, and their, uh, they, the, because they don't want to change, they want to view things the way they always have, is going to have some pretty grave consequences. He's already talked about that a little bit. Today, He's going to go into it even more. And really what we're going to see is really a warning that is for all people today, back then, and even for today. Because remember, Jesus has already told these guys that because of their hypocrisy, because of their disobedience against God and the kingdom, that the kingdom will not be theirs. Remember that someday they, they won't be a part of it anymore. Okay, that it will be enjoyed instead by those who enjoy. Remember, we talked about God's sovereign authority. And it's going to be enjoyed by those people as they respond to that authority. Remember, with wholehearted, fruit-bearing faith in Jesus. 
Those are the ones gonna, that are going to enjoy it. Well, in today's passage, Jesus is going to continue to address their hypocrisy and their disobedience along with the consequences. Yet along with that, what he's going to do, and I found this interesting in my study, is he's actually going to show them and us that in order to succeed in experiencing the king, true kingdom living, to really be a part of the kingdom, there is a certain condition that must be met. I think some, you know, you've heard of the term cheap grace before. Well, really, that's kind of the concept that Jesus is going to be talking about for how we just feel like we just pray a prayer and we're in and all is good. And that's about, that's about rest. And then then I just try hard for a while. Well, Jesus is going to really point today that there is a, there is definitely a certain condition that must be met in order to really experience, to be in, to truly be in the kingdom of heaven. And really, it's going to be one that many people assume that they have met, especially in America. They assume they've met this, but oftentimes they haven't. So let's start by looking. We're going to look at a parable that Jesus, we've been looking at all these parables. Now, this is another parable that Jesus tells right on the heels of the other one. He's told to, he's telling another one right on the heels of that other one. So look at Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to look at verse 1 through 6. It says, And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Whoa. (laughs) That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Now, first of all, we've got to remember, it's important to remember that when we're reading parables, that we don't worry about that things all seem to be realistic. You know how sometimes you read a parable and you go, whoa. That was, that was kind of unrealistic, or that was kind of crazy, or that he responded that way. You see, oftentimes um, provocative or disturbing language is used in parables in order to move us, to get us outside of just that parable in order to be able to really understand something deeper. There's a bigger significant picture to this. So oftentimes he'll use hyperbole, or you use these exaggerations, or these what seems crazy to get our attention, okay? And that's precisely what's going to happen in this parable, okay? We're going to see a lot of what we just see right here. So here we have uh, Jesus, once again, he's instructing the religious leaders uh, concerning what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's been doing a lot of this, hasn't he? Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And remember, we've talked about this. We're going to drill this in until we're done with Matthew and maybe even beyond. The kingdom of heaven, remember? It can be seen, you can kind of look at it as the reign and rule of God in the hearts and lives of those who submit to his authority. That's the kingdom of God. That's kind of the micro kingdom of God. Macro kingdom of God would just be his, his reign and his rule over everything, Okay. So this is kind of making it more, uh, the more personal view of that. So Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like, or could be compared, some of your versions say, to a king who throws a wedding feast for his, under, uh, his son. Now, you got to understand, back then, the feast was an elaborate part of the wedding. I mean, it could go on for days. 
It was incredible. So Jesus is what he's doing. What Jesus is doing, he's being very smart here. He's taking this, this uh, one of the greatest celebrations that they can even think of. That would be the biggest celebration these people would go to. So he picks a picture of that. So that the biggest, that in their society, that's all they knew as far as the big celebration. And he's using it to paint a picture of what the kingdom of heaven like. Yet he's going a little further. He's saying that not just an ordinary feast, not just someone in your village, this is a king. Okay, so just picture in your head. This is a king is, create, is having a wedding feast, okay? And he longs to celebrate his son with others. That's his desire. So he's going to go all out. This reminds me of my wife and I went to a wedding a handful of years back to some friends of ours who were getting married, I think for the first time, and they were in their 50s. Okay, and they had very, they were very successful, had really nice jobs. So they had saved and they had dated for 25 years. Yeah, they did. Whole other sermon. But, but, they were awesome. They were really good friends of ours, part of our church and ministry and all that stuff. Um, so, but they had been saving. They figured they were probably going to get married. So they'd been saving all this time. And I'm telling you, they had really nice jobs. They were saving for a lavish, lavish wedding. Yet here's what made this wedding so special, that they didn't make it about them. They did not make this wedding about them. These guys went all out and making sure that all of their guests us felt celebrated as their close friends. I mean, they celebrated us. It was amazing. We were there to celebrate them, but it was an amazing, amazing event. They went all out making us feel that way. They had a huge spread at this beautiful winery up in Napa, and you go in this big banquet hall, and it was just food everywhere. They even, get this, they even imported gelato and chocolate from their favorite villages in Italy. For us to enjoy. Is that, is that amazing? It was two days, two days of celebrating, okay? It was amazing. I mean, we're, most of the time we were walking around like this. And not because, oh my gosh, look at how they're going all crazy with their wedding and they'll be in debt forever. No, it was like, they're doing this for us and we get to celebrate. And that's, so that's the picture here. That's the picture that Jesus is trying to paint of this, not just this normal wedding celebration, but a king is putting it on and he wants to celebrate his son and he wants us to enjoy. He wants all the people invited to enjoy. Now we see that when it's time for the wedding feast, you know, back then they would invite people and tell them, but then they would have to come back again and say, okay, it's ready. You know, they couldn't text people or tell, call them or anything. So they'd say, okay, it's ready. So the king sends out his servants to let those that had already been and received invitation to know it's time. All right, come, come to the feast. Okay. But we see there in verse three that these invited guests, what do they do? They choose not to come. They don't want to come. We're not, they doesn't tell us why. They, don't give, they really don't give any reason. But then notice in verse 4, this detailed second appeal from the king to them. I mean, he wants them to know how much he has done for them. The best food has been prepared. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about his oxen and all that. The best has been prepared. The filet mignon is ready. The lobster tail is as big as your arm. I mean... I'm not a foodie, so I mean, think about what you would think about as just amazing, amazing food, okay? And, and oh, by the way, the dessert 
The desserts are beyond your wildest imagination. That's what this king is trying to communicate through his servants. Come, come and celebrate my son at a feast that will end all feasts. This will be the feast. This will be the feast they'll be talking about forever. That's what he's doing here. That's the picture that Jesus is painting. Look how they respond. Verse tells us that they paid no attention, which literally that phrase means that they simply didn't care. They just didn't care. They actually show their indifference, indifferent attitude towards the king by instead of coming, what do they do? They just simply go off to their daily business. Goes off to his business, goes off to my farm. I don't know. I don't care. It seems crazy, doesn't it? They're invited to this amazing banquet, this amazing feast. Now, I got better things to do. My, you know, my chores, things got to happen. I think some of you are try- starting to get where Jesus is, is going with all this. In verse week 6, we see that some people went even further. They seized the king's servants. They mistreated them, even killed them. Who would kill somebody for coming with an invitation to a feast? See how crazy this is? But he's painting a picture. Well, let's take a few minutes here and look at what Jesus is really getting at with this parable here. Like, as you've probably guessed already, the king represents God. Okay? And the son is Jesus. This feast that God has invited to, people to is, is this celebration of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom. It's an invitation to salvation. Come! Come, my son is here to enjoy all that being a part of the kingdom has to offer. Come, I want you to have it all. Just come, okay? That's what the feast is. As for those that have already been invited to the wedding feast, that's Israel. This is, this is talking about Israel who had long ago been invited into this covenantal relationship with God. You're my people. You'll always be my people, okay? That's who he's talking about here. Come. Its Savior is here. Join. Um, and what he talks about, the sending out of the servants represents God's representatives, like John the Baptist and the apostles and others that follow Jesus, because this is written after. This is going to be written like about 80 AD, okay? So these people are inviting, have been inviting Israel to join in the celebration and come. Your long-awaited Messiah has come. Remember we talked about with John. John, prepare. The king, he's here. He's here. He's here. Behold the Lamb. All these things that John the Baptist did, they were, the invitation was going out. You know, it had already been sent. Basically, okay, the feast, it's starting. That's what John the Baptist was basically saying. Come. The feast is here. The apostles were doing the same thing. The feast, it's starting. Come. You've had your invitation for a long time. Let's party. Okay? It's time to celebrate. Yet sadly, the religious leaders, along with many people in Israel, choose to not believe. Some choose to be indifferent about Jesus. They're just not interested. They simply don't care. They just want to go about their business, you know? And we see that, you know, that happens even in our world today, don't you? Don't you see that in our world today? Do you sense that there's an indifference about Jesus with some people? Sure there is. There's an indifference that people responding to Jesus and his message of uh, salvation with total indifference today with absolutely no interest at all. Amazingly, people would rather simply go about their business than be a part of this feast. I want you to think about that for a second. I think as believers, we for, in Christ, we forget that. 
We forget that we're around a world that's indifferent and how amazing it is that the offer, the offer that is being rejected or the offer that is being treated with indifference, that should break our hearts. It should break our hearts that people just don't care. That's huge. Some, though, we've been seen are even hostile to the invitation. We know that happens today as well. Did you know, um, wait, well, first of all, we saw this a couple, a couple weeks ago. Remember the tenant farmers who, when the, when the landowner sent them to get, okay, I'm going to get your, my share of the grapes, they killed them. So we saw that there's, there's been hostility towards this message as well. Did you know that there are still many part places in the world today that where, you, where if you were to proclaim that you are a follower of Jesus, you will get killed? More than you think. More than you think. A lot of places it is illegal to be a follower of Jesus, or it is, if it's not illegal, it's looked at down upon so much that you can lose everything for saying, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. Even here, think about it. The truth concerning the need to sacrifice everything in order to follow Jesus is really the real criteria for being a true follower of his Think about how that's met. Have you ever explained that to somebody? Have you ever thought about trying, okay, it's not just about praying a prayer. It's about saying, no, I give everything. I'm going to sacrifice, I'm going to sacrifice everything. We've been seeing that throughout this gospel. That's what Jesus is saying. That is not a message that's received well, is it? I like Jesus. Jesus is, Jesus is just all right with me. That's okay. You know, I can, I, can, I can do that. But a lot of times when we have that kind of mentality towards people, we're looked at as being overzealous or we're looking at being at narrow-minded. What? That's, the, that's, that's what it is? You're giving up everything for that? Are you crazy? I can't talk to you anymore. Or you're just weirdo. So there is that kind of response as well that, we, that happens today. Well, if you think the response to the king's servants was harsh by these invited guests... Check out the king's response <laughs> to what he did. Look at what, look what, look what he did, does according to, from what they did. It says in verse 7, The king was angry, and he sent his troops and scolded them. Look what he did. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. Wow. He wasn't just like, ah, oh, Dang it, I invited everybody to come. Now what am I going to do? Judgment. Pay it. Payment for it. That's huge. What is going on here? What is Jesus trying to say with such an extreme things here? What he's saying here is that God is patient. He will keep sending his service to proclaim the truth. He'll tell you, listen, you don't want, you, wait, you don't want to come? Wait, go again and tell him how really good it is. Wait, wait, did you really explain? Tell him how awesome it is to be in a relationship with the king of the universe, the creator of the universe. He says God is going to continue to do that, but even God's patience has limits. Even God's patience has limits. The truth is the consequences for continued disobedience to God to ignoring his messengers is devastating. 
We've talked about that before a little bit. Well, that's like continue to respond with indifference. This verse is actually a prophetic reference, actually, to the overthrowing and destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. Some, this is like, like 10 years, like uh, 10 years after Mo, uh, Matthew wrote this, it's believed that up to 1 million, up to a million, or after, before, after he read it, up to 1 million Jews died as the entire city was destroyed, along with the temple. Want to talk about judgment? That's a little bit of judgment, isn't it? Okay, this was the result of Israel's religious leaders failing to lead the people to true righteousness and devotion to God. The reality is disobedience to God, neglecting what his, his message is no joke. It is no joke at all. Now, many people, we don't like to talk about this idea, and we talked about this back when we talked about God's wrath months ago. Many people don't like this idea of God's judgment, you know, and him being wrathful. You know, most people want uh, a kinder, gentler God. We want a Mr. Rogers kind of God, right? That, that suits us a whole lot better. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He puts it how we want not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, a senile benevolence. We just want this nice guy that's going to be a good guy, going to dole out good things. That's what people want, but that's not God. Because the truth is, God's judgment and wrath must always be seen as relation, in relation to his maintaining and defending his attributes of love, of holiness, and righteousness and justice. Because if God is those things... There has to be judgment. I mean, our, don't we want that in our, in our own world? You, you commit a crime, we cry out for justice. It's the same thing. But God is the ultimate justice, the ultimate here. Hebrews 10, chapter 10 says this, How much more severe do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Wow, that's a little bit different than what your, probably your manger scene is going to look like this Christmas, right? That's a holy and just God. And this is what Jesus is trying to help them to understand. The truth is that God is patient. He is generous. He continually invites people to the wedding feast. He's always doing it. He's always making invitations. But he's also holy and just, and he will ultimately judge those who reject his offer of salvation. He will. People continue to say, no, no, that sounds great, but no, judgment's coming. And not because he's a horrible, mean, grumpy, darn, they're not going to play me. No, because he's just and he's holy. Now, this may seem like a good place to end. Well, let me see. Let me go back just a little bit. Just a I almost jumped, jumped ahead here. I totally lost myself in, in my notes here. Hold on just a second. Got it. Okay. Okay, so look now at the king. Let's look at the king, what the king does in this parable. Look what he decides to do next. Look at verses uh, 8 through 10. He says, 
Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled, absolutely filled with guests. Okay? So the wedding feast is prepared. It's ready to go. You know, the steam is coming off the flame and yawn. It's, it's, it's ready to go. It smells or look, everything is looking good. And the king, undaunted, is going to make sure there's a celebration. There is going to be one. We're not canceling this, okay? Notice that what he does, he describes those who were initially invited yet refused to attend. What does he call them? He calls them unworthy. In some of your versions, it says they are undeserving. What is it? What made them unworthy? They were worthy to be invited in the first place, obviously. What, though, has made them now unworthy and undeserving to go to the feast? Really, it's one thing. It's simply their refusal to attend. It's just their refusal to attend attend this invitation by the king, their lord. They say, no. That's a huge, huge thing he's saying here. He's not just going to ignore it. He's not just going to ignore that. And since that's the case, the king decides to send out another group of servants, and this time, invite everybody you can find. I love that. Could you imagine? I get this picture in my head of these guys just, uh, yeah, got it. you hungry? Come on. You know, just grabbing and picking guys up. You know, you, oh, oof, okay. Come on, you're coming, you're coming too. Everybody, you know, oh, we don't have enough. Can you, can you do the jails for a minute? We need everybody. You know, you, you people over there smoking crack, hold on. Will you stop for a second? We got something. You want to come to a feast? Sure. You banker, lawyer, you know, you, got, you want to come to a feast? Everybody. He says, just go get them all. Let's just fill this sucker. And this was no small room like this probably. He's given this idea of the king, like a palace. Let's fill this huge hall with people, good and bad. You see, when the Jews who had been invited refused to accept Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, God declares them unworthy. It wasn't just, oh, darn. No, you leaders are now unworthy because you refused to come. You refused my invitation. So then he opens it up to all people, no matter their social class, no matter their religion, no matter their moral background. It doesn't matter. You're all invited to come. And as we saw last week, remember when Jesus told the religious, religious leaders that the kingdom no longer belongs to them? Remember that they will be replaced? So too here, we see that since they've rejected God's invitation of salvation, the kingdom no longer belongs to them anymore. It's going to go to those that are worthy. And who are the ones that are worthy? Anybody that responds to the invitation. Isn't that amazing? You've got to get cleaned up. You've got to get your act together. Just come. You, you, you accept the invitation? You understand what's going on? You come. That's amazing. Now, this may seem like a good place to end the story. We see that the wedding hall is filled with guests from all walks of life. I just picture them, you know, going, can you believe we're here? This, I can't believe I'm here. This is amazing. And I'm sitting next to you. I, I would have never sat next to you in the restaurant. You know, all that kind of stuff. And they're just having a good old time. Okay? You would, so you'd think this would be a great place to end this whole thing. But what we're going to see is Jesus shows us, like I said at the beginning, there is a condition 
in which one is actually considered an acceptable guest to the wedding feast. There is a condition. Look at verses 11 and 13 through 13. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into outer darkness in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whoa. Remember once again, what? That is amazing. So here we have this king. He's coming in goes, okay, sire, everybody's in. They're all sitting at the table. Okay, I'm going to go check this out. And so he looks, he goes in to look around and he sees something that greatly distresses him. This is no small thing, obviously, by what he does. There's a man that is inappropriately dressed. What's going on here? The reality is, though, obviously this guy knows that he's not appropriately dressed because it says what happens when the king confronts him? He's what? Speechless. He has no excuse. He, he, can't, he can't say, oh, I didn't have time. No, it says that he is speechless. He had no excuse for being inappropriate at dress. So the king bound him and throws him out to what would be understood as torment and, judge, and judgment. Now, okay, this seems a little much, doesn't it? A little, little, going, little disproportionate reaction. I mean, what side of the bed did this king get up on this morning that someone's just not wearing the right clothes? He's going to throw him into a place of torment and judgment. That just seems crazy, crazy. After all, remember, this guy was just, they just invited him off the street. <laughs> what is going on here? Remember, this parable, a parable is meant to communicate a heavenly meaning. Okay? Don't get bogged down on the fact that that seems crazy what he is doing. The provocative language here is meant to move us, okay? Move us beyond this story of what's going on. You see, even though this person was invited to the feast right off the street, he still should have been wearing decent, clean clothes. Clothing that was appropriate for the occasion. Now, commentators vary on what this means, whether he chose not to go home and change or whether the clothes that were provided by the king at the palace, he decided, no, I don't want to do that. I want to wear what I got on. That's not the thing. The point is that he was not wearing the expected necessary attire and he suffered the consequences for it. Here's the point. Everyone far and wide, rich and poor, successful and down and out, is invited to the wedding feast to accept this offer of salvation through Christ alone. Yet, there is a condition, like I said, for being considered an acceptable guest, for being able to participate, to truly participate in the kingdom of heaven, of being truly saved. He says here there's a proper garment to be worn. It must be worn to attend this feast, or there's going to be consequences. Judgment. And what he's the judge, kind of judgment he's talking about is the judgment that's reserved for those who refuse God's gift of salvation. So what's the proper garment? What's he supposed to wear? What is the proper wedding garment? Look at a few verses here that help us. Okay, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says when speaking about being favorably accepted in God's sight. He's, he knows he's being favorably accepted. Look what he says. I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God, 
For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in the robe of righteousness. I'm like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding on a bride or a bride with her jewels. In Philippians chapter 3, in speaking about what allows him to participate in the kingdom, what allows him to participate in this wedding feast, the apostle Paul says this, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And again, in 2 Corinthians, he says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's the proper wedding garment? What is the garment you must wear to the wedding feast? It's the righteousness of Jesus. You must have on the righteousness of Jesus. It's his holiness, his perfection. It's not the the filthy rags of self-righteousness that will enable us to enjoy the feast. Not our our good works, not our good intentions. Well, I, I came to church. I tried hard. I tried to get to know God, but it just didn't work. Why can't, isn't that enough? No. He's saying it is not enough. Only when we put on Christ's righteousness. Now, you guys, this should be the most exciting news that you have ever heard. This should be the most exciting news we've ever heard. We enjoy God's tremendous celebration of Jesus and all that being a part of his kingdom has to offer because of the righteousness of Jesus, because of who he is. What a ridiculous relief. That should be such an amazing relief to all of us that we enjoy the feast for one reason and one reason alone. We put on the righteousness of Jesus and we have done nothing of our own self to earn that feast, which is everything that goes along with being a part of the kingdom. All we need to do is put on his righteousness. And what that means is meaning that at the time of our salvation, the righteousness of Christ is now attributed to us. When we invite Christ to come take control of our lives, to be the Lord of our lives, to sacrifice, say, I'm all yours. His righteousness is imputed onto us. It's given to us. We get his righteousness. And as we progress in our sanctification, or what that means is in our being set apart for God's purposes. As we continue to move forward and grow in our walk with God and figure out how to be a true citizen of heaven, we keep our focus. What we do, we keep our focus on His glory by deepening our relationship with Him through times of being in the Word, times of prayer, in times of fellowship with other believers. You guys, it's not about, and I'm not saying that, oh gosh, I'm not, oh here he goes again, talking about praying. I haven't been praying. That's not the point. The point is, we continue to, the righteousness of Christ, we already have it, but we don't really get it and understand it and fully live in it unless we're pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ. It just doesn't, we're, we're, we're kind of clueless to what's going on. You see, I... We need to soak in this truth daily. Because really, here's, here's what came to me this week. I believe that one of the main reasons that we, you and I, don't prioritize spending time with God 
Or even at times we treat him with indifference or we neglect the gifts that we all have at least one that we have in order to do what? What's the purpose of our gifts? To build up the body of Christ. Why don't we do these things? Why do these, why do these things happen? Because we forget that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That makes, wow, how can I not want to do those things? How can I not want to spend time with God? How can I not want to at least figure out a way to deepen my relationship with God? No matter what, no matter what my schedule looks like, no matter what my time looks like, no matter what my life looks like, what my attitude, my problems. And it looks different for everybody. It looks different for all of us. You see, it's easy to see or judge ourselves by our good or bad behavior and then allow that to determine how God sees us and how useful we are to him. You ever struggled with that? I do. Sometimes I think, oh, this is the kind of person I am, so this is probably how much God is going to use me. Or, whoa, I'm doing good. God, why aren't you using me? You see what we're doing here? Our own self-righteousness That's what happens here. We know in our heads, we know that we have the righteousness of Christ, but I think in our hearts, we forget that because of Jesus, God absolutely always delights in us and sees us as gifted and extremely useful for building up the body of Christ. Amen? Anybody? (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Because of Christ's righteousness. It's amazing. We are gifted. We're useful. He loves us. He delights in us. Well, Jesus sums up this message in, this, uh, in uh, verse 14. He says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Like this, so this picks up the very language of this parable. There are many that are called to repent and believe in the gospel. But as we have seen, this doesn't mean that all those invited will respond or enjoy, even enjoy the feast. The chosen are those that, like we saw last week, don't simply pay lip service to the call of Christ, but are those who exhibit, remember, fruit-bearing, wholehearted faith in Christ. Not works, not, oh, look how good I'm doing, but I'm following Jesus and letting him work in and through my life. May we continue to grow in the, in the truth that only by fully embracing the righteousness of Jesus and not our own, stop comparing. This is my problem. Stop measuring. Stop it. Look to the righteousness of Christ when you look at how your, how your Christian life is going and your relationship with Jesus. Look to his righteousness. It's on his shoulders. That doesn't mean we don't do anything, but that's how we see ourselves. And that's how we succeed in truly experiencing kingdom living. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that it is so poignant, so powerful that God, uh, stories like this that show us that you are so good and you're so patient and you're so kind and you call us to yourself. You call everyone to yourself. Yet we know that many are not going to respond. God, 
First, God, I pray that you would help us here. Those of us that are walking with you that say, yes, we are followers of yours. God, help us, God, to focus our thoughts and our minds on how beautiful it is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, God. And then let us, God, allow our lives to be lived out of that. May we approach you boldly in our prayers. May we ask crazy things that are according to your will because of the, what we know we can do because of the righteousness we are clothed in, God. May we trust you. May we be humble. And God, I pray that we would not allow ourselves to become indifferent. Help us when we do become indifferent to remember that. The righteousness of Christ is what we are clothed in so we can enjoy the feast. Help us, God. We, I want to. We all want to enjoy the feast. Help us. We need your help. And it's in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.